what we think is the difficulty of building a layer two is getting the users and getting people to bridge into a new layer two is like the hardest thing you could do. Like, I mean, I'm sure you guys know it. Like if you tell me that I need to bridge into some like shitty layer two, like I'm just not going to do it. Um, but I think we have built this app that people enjoy and people don't think about it as bridging into a layer two where they don't know what they're going to do with it. They think, oh, I'm just depositing into Able. But un- under the hood, they have already bridged their, their money into this exchange and, and the chain as well. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. March is just around the corner, and I wanted to make sure to give you a quick reminder to not top tick your prices of your DAS London tickets. If you use codes 0x10 at checkout, you can lock in a 10% discount on your ticket. Don't miss out on your chance to get ahead of the curve. I'll see you in London. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. We have a great episode today lined up with Julian Ko, the founder and CEO of Avo, formerly known as Ribbon which is an app-specific L2 built using the OP stack that focuses on derivatives such as options and perps. Today is January 24th, and this episode will be going out shortly. As a reminder, be sure to use code 0xresearch10 at app.blockworksresearch.com for 10% off your annual subscription. So thank you so much for coming on, Julian. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, I listened to the pod here and there, so uh, yeah, it's good. Yeah, for starters, would you mind giving us a quick history of Ribbon, the rationale behind the rebrand to AVO, and the motivation behind moving to an OP stack L2? Yeah, sure. Maybe I'll start with the first part of like uh, how we started Ribbon and why we moved on to AVO. Um, so yeah, I've been working in crypto for the last few years. Uh, I was previously like a software engineer at Coinbase. And yeah, my co-founder and I, we were sort of super active in DeFi. We were like running all these bots, uh, keeper bots and all these different like DEXs and so on. And I think we we sort of wanted to build something in DeFi. And at that point in time, I think one of the narratives which we thought was really interesting was uh, all the yield in DeFi at that point in time were coming from basically uh, shit coins. And like back then it was like really ridiculous, right? It'd be like yams and like sushi and just like food related things. So it just felt kind of ridiculous. And I think we there was no like there was no sort of sophistication to the types of strategies people were doing, um, and at the same time we saw uh, in Asia there was like a rise of these crypto brokers uh, selling these like structured products, um, and which was pretty interesting. I mean, I didn't come from like an options trading background, but I understood the appeal of these products. Um, unfortunately, I think these products were really targeted towards you know, BTC miners, uh, a lot of them had like a minimum 100 BTC like subscription to use them. You needed to sort of KYC, do, do the whole shebang to sort of invest in these products. So yeah, we thought like, okay, can we sort of bring those types of products into the DeFi space uh, to fill that void in uh, the yield opportunity, which was not sort of... Um, driven by tokens, but driven by sort of something else, which was maybe like some sort of option related yield, some sort of risk that you're selling. Uh, That was like the core idea and it got pretty successful. I think in 2021, uh, we launched the first product in April, which was some flavor of what these like crypto brokers were doing, but more in like a DeFi native format. Um, Within like the next six to 12 months, like, 
it went from zero to like 400 mil of TVL. Uh, it became like a category in DeFi. A bunch of people copied us. Um, and yeah, I think it became like a somewhat interesting category for people to look at. Um, but, you know, when the bear market hit, I think people immediately pull their funds out from the most risky uh, yield sources. So um, basically anything related to uh, some sort of option readers stuff was pretty scary. Anything which had sort of like a directional bias was pretty scary. People sort of retreated from that to just like, what's the safest possible yield on chain? Or like, I'm just going to withdraw my money out of crypto altogether. So there was like a huge like uh, deflation in basically like DeFi TVLs across the board. Um, but our category was also like affected quite a bit. So yeah, I think we knew that was coming. We saw, um, yeah, we, we kind of knew that was going to happen. And we started thinking about like, okay, what is our next second big act? I don't think we can just sit around and wait for the new bull market or wait for people to get risk on again. Um, and the natural extension to what we are working on is sort of building an options exchange. I think the reason for that was because, you know, we built these products that sold a ton of options every single week. Um, and we, we just sold them sort of to market makers on the other side. But I mean, these market makers would buy from us and like trade it on Deribit. So, you know, indirectly, Deribit was getting all this trading volume from the flow that we were generating. Um, so we thought, you know, why are we sort of helping this other exchange, like get all this trading volume? Like what if we sort of vertically integrated the whole business and we had this big source of option flow and we also had this exchange where these flows could, could settle on, could trade on. Um, they also have the core idea. And I think, yeah, we, we just realized that one of the hardest things about building a crypto exchange or specifically like a crypto options exchange is bootstrapping like the, the demand and the supply. Um, I think you can pay market makers to bootstrap the supply, but if there's no demand, it's like very difficult to, to get off the ground. But I think we, we had, we knew we had like one very big customer, which is like our own vaults. So we thought, okay, we could build this exchange today. And we know for sure, like we have, X million of TVL who's going to just like keep selling options on our exchange no matter what. So, so we knew we had secured at least like one very big customer and, and we thought, you know, let's like use that to bootstrap an exchange. Uh, we know for sure we have some amount of take of natural take of flow from these products. Uh, can we build more products to, to bring in more flows uh, and eventually sort of build an exchange from there. Um, so yeah, we launched this product. Uh, it's called Avo in the last it's been sort of eight to nine months now. Um, we started out with just options and we've been building a lot of other stuff as well. Particularly, I think the perp stuff has really, really uh, grown a lot in the last quarter. So yeah, I think our vision now has gone from just an options exchange to, you know, being one of like the biggest exits out there. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll sort of pause there for now. Yeah, no, that's great to hear. It's been really exciting sort of watching the entire evolution of AVO and especially the origin story. You know, nowadays you see a lot more DeFi protocols pursuing that uh, sort of vertical integration, especially if they have like a sticky user base, whether that's on their protocol or their user base. And I think AVO is like really leading the growth there. So 
Avo's doing really well today as an OP stack rollup. You guys are seeing a lot of transaction activity. And obviously, that comes with a lot of costs on posting DA to Ethereum. But you guys have been teasing this for a while. You made a big announcement last night that you're going to be moving to Celestia as a DA layer for obvious reasons, such as protocol slash sequencer profitability, being able to scale up the protocol, etc. And You've been subsidizing all L2 gas fees for users this whole time, which is not normally something you see for a, a roll-up, especially when you're paying such high DA costs. So mm. I guess a few questions here. The first one is, why Celestia out of all of the DA layers available? And the second one is, is there any plan to eventually start charging users transaction fees to sort of subsidize yourself a little? Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, we announced this last night. I think it's been in the works for a while. Uh, we initially felt like the cost was okay until November, December, when basically Ethereum price started going up, Ethereum gas started going up, and our, our, our attraction started going up. So it's like a triple whammy and all our costs started like multiplying. Um, so I think, yeah, at the peak, we were spending close to somewhere between 50 to 100 ETH a month just on, on DA. And yeah, that's pretty crazy, right? Like, I mean, that's a few mil a year that we are basically burning. Uh, it doesn't help users in any way. I think like users don't feel like this helps their user experience. Uh, it doesn't help the business or the protocol at all. So it, it, it is like a really big, big expense. Um, so yeah, we, we started looking at all the DA sort of solutions out there. And I think we just felt like the one which was furthest along with like a working mainnet was Celestia. Um, I would say it was more of like a practical choice compared to some sort of like uh, pros and cons between five different things. It was really like what is available today for sure uh, that we know other people, we don't want to be like the guinea pig on some brand new DA layer. So we, we know a few other people have been using it, especially the latest one, uh, Manta Network. Uh, which was like a pretty big one as well. So we know that those it would be like stress tested in some way. Um, and yeah, I mean, Celeste team has been awesome. They uh, basically helped us work on the integration um, in in conjunction with Conduit, which is like our rollup provider. So yeah, I think on our side, it was actually a pretty small lift. Um, most of the decisions were sort of like, it was pretty, I would say it's a pretty obvious solution um, because it was like the, the furthest along in the market and the most mature. Um, so yeah, if we had to make this choice in six months, maybe it would be a bit different uh, with like 4844 and like EigenDA and a few other mm. big ones. But like if we made this choice right now, it's pretty clear. Um, and we were bleeding money to uh, paying this DA on, on mainnet. So we had to make this decision now. Gotcha. And are there any plans to eventually like charge users like a small amount of transaction fees? And I can imagine like your Celestia dating posting costs, so your Celestia data posting costs are like very minimal. They're probably like hundreds or at most thousands a day. So are there plans to charge or like it's just such a small cost that you don't even need to think about that? It's such a small cost that we don't think we need to charge. And we, I think the mental overhead for users to think about like, do I want to do like one trade, like one big trade or two small trades? If two small trades cost a bit more and like some sort of gas fee is really annoying. Uh, so I think we just wanted to make sure users always felt like 
it was basically free whether they sent 10,000 orders or one big order. Um, yeah, so I think we are going to continue to subsidize it. Uh, this would basically drive our cost down by a significant margin. So um, whatever we are earning in trading fees right now, like massively uh, compensates for uh, the, our current cost after we move to, to Celestia. So yeah, I think the equation now is like pretty clear. We can keep doing this for a long time. All right. That's great to hear. Rick, I know you had some questions you want to ask on the options front. I'll pass it over to you. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so one thing I've been thinking about is um, if you look at TradFi, options are a huge part of that total market, like even larger than spot. But then when you come to crypto, the same like market structure isn't uh, prevalent. Do you feel that that's going to flip to like in crypto, so the market structure is similar to Tradify. And on top of that, is that, are you kind of more focused on options right now than perps, or do you see them as equal um, focus areas because of the maybe market potential there is in options? Yeah, I think, um, you know, some other like smart traders also echo this sentiment. Like I think CL has posted a bit about this as well. Um, but, you know, if there was like a cycle where crypto options gets big, it could be this one. I think some of the major tailwinds that we have seen is first, like um, the option volume as a, as a function of like total derivatives in crypto has been growing steadily over time. So it hasn't like skyrocketed. I think now it's still in like the single digit percent, but it has been climbing. Um, the second big one is, you know, we we feel like, or at least I feel like this. there's been like a significant institutionalization of the space. So a clear like moment that that became real is, you know, when like the CME OI became bigger than like Binance OI. I think that's like a clear um, sign that institutions are sort of entering the space. Um, and, you know, right now, like the option market is dominated by institutions. Uh, we think we, we actually see a lot of market make like crypto options market makers trading on the CME as well. So not just like a derivative monopoly anymore, I think. So yeah, I think there's some like natural reasons why options could take off. Um, I do think it's still yet to be seen whether retail would want to trade this stuff. I think, um, you know, a lot of people have also just mentioned this, but like perps are an amazing product. Uh, the liquidity is really good and you can basically make a perp market for anything pretty easily. Whereas like the option market requires a lot of complexity around the math behind it. So, you know, people can make perps on like uh, meme coins really easily, but I don't think anyone would be able to create like a option market for like a, a meme coin as, as trivially. So, yeah, I think it's still unclear that the stuff that retail wants to trade would be um, unavailable, like if they would need to use options to access that. But um, I think for sure on the inst institutional front, the options volume will grow as a as a function as as just like a percent of what they want to trade. Um, yeah, I I do think there is like a market opportunity at least uh, for someone to build like this sort of retail focus, like Robin Hood of crypto, you know, I think 
if you're lucky, uh, the gains that you can get from options are like, could be truly massive. And that's the kind of thing that gets a lot of eyeballs and gets people interested. Uh, people want to get that 10x within one day, which is like very unlikely in like the perp world. Um, so I do think that there is an opportunity for that. Um, I think we just need to figure out what the sort of user experience is going to look like, a few other things like liquidity. We, we do have actually some ideas of how to break into the re retail market, um, but uh, we're still sort of thinking about it right now. Um, your second question on like whether we are focused on options versus perps, I think, yeah, like we started out doing options. I think it's still like our bread and butter. We feel like we have the best uh, options offering in um, the whole space. Um, we feel like we have the best liquidity, uh, the biggest open interest, uh, the longest track record of sort of risk management. Um, we, we, we seeded the insurance fund with like a, a, a mill also to sort of like uh, make sure if there are any issues with risk, things don't blow up. Um, so yeah, we do think it's sort of like the safest and best product for options trading in DeFi. Um, but, you know, like right now, I, I don't think the option market is going parabolic. So we are not expending all our energy into trying to sort of squeeze water from this stone. Um, if the market sort of suddenly explodes, we want to be there. Like we want to clearly uh, capitalize on it. But um, right now, we're still monitoring it. I think our volumes have been growing very slightly. They're not going exponential. But um, yeah, I think in the meantime, I think we do see a huge opportunity in the perp space as well, which, you know, the market is here right now. And it's something that we can spend dollars into. Uh, we, we can sort of like invest into it and we know it's growing really quickly. So a lot of my personal energy right now is growing our perps offering. Um, but the market may come back on the on the option side and I'll, I might spend my focus there again. Um, but yeah, at least as of Q4, like my number one focus has just been like growing the perps offering. Okay, that's interesting because the way I've seen it is, especially yeah, on the options side, if you guys could capture, let's say five or even 10% of Deribit's volume, that would be like a huge, huge driver. Do you think that could be possible in the next one to two years or... Is the volume too steep on that platform? I definitely think it's possible, but my personal belief is uh, the protocol would make a lot more money if we sort of win the perp side compared to winning a small portion of the option side. Um, just like the sheer amount of volumes are like so much bigger on the perp side right now. Um, like even if we got our option volume to 10x where it is right now, I think our perps would still drive a lot of volume uh, and sort of fee dollars. So, yeah, I mean, I actually heard this stat from uh, someone who worked at another like big centralized exchange, but it was like one of the big three that their options offering was like less than like 2% of their total revenue. So, um, yeah, even for a major centralized exchange, like that may actually, that's sort of the economics of it. So, yeah, I think that's why we are focused on the purposing right now. Gotcha. Um, talking about sort of liquidity, right? There's a common saying that liquidity begets liquidity. And currently, AVO is one of the most liquid on-chain trading platforms for options and perhaps also for pre-launch futures, which I think we'd like to touch on later. 
And I guess one could argue that that's one of your strongest competitive advantage, right? You don't want to go trade on an exchange that doesn't have liquidity. Every trade you make like moves the market by like 5% or for option like moves the IV by like, IV by like whatever percentage. I guess the question here is how defendable do you feel this mode is? Um, and I guess like, how do you see your competitive advantage against like other options exchanges, whether that's like DeFi, TradFi or like CFi? Yeah, I mean, for sure, liquidity begets liquidity, but what we think is actually the most important piece is like the taker flow. Um, like market makers don't care about which venue they're trading on for the most part, as long as the venue doesn't steal their funds or the venue is not like going insolvent. Uh, what they care about is like, yeah, am I going to, which venue am I going to get the most flow and hopefully like the softest flow. Um, so yeah, I think our focus is just like get as many users as possible on our exchange. Uh, either whether that comes from perps or pre-launch or, or anything else and try and sort of push them to different types of products that we offer. Um, teach them, it may be a, like a longer process, but teaching them about like, okay, now the market's ranging between 38K and 42K. Like you're just going to get chopped up if you trade perps, but you know, you can do some interesting strategies around options. Um, we do think that's actually how we sort of build our mode over time by just having these like sticky takers, like natural, like real humans trading. Uh, I, I think that's like the most sticky thing possible. Um, on sort of the market maker and liquidity side, like, um, if you actually have a lot of real humans coming and trading, these market makers are naturally just going to show up and they're going to compete to win this flow. So I think for all exchanges on day one, you need to subsidize and get one side of the supply demand uh, going. Um, but I think over time, like if the demand doesn't exist, like the supply has no reason to exist as well. Um, so yeah, I think our focus is really just being like, Let's just get as many traders as possible on the platform uh, and try to convert them to the different products on Evo. Um, I think that would be our com competitive advantage over time compared to like, I don't know, some funky like fee, mech fee rebate mechanism that makes like liquid, like makers a bit more efficient. Like we don't think that's actually very useful. We can copy that if we need to, but the, the part that's hard to copy is just like, the distribution and, and getting users. You don't think a points program is a, com I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, I actually wanted to, we have like a, I have a draft tweet uh, that I've never sent out where it's just like F points, uh, <laughs> but we, we've never like tweeted it out. Yeah, I think it's becoming a bit overdone these days. You can <laughs> see like CT's getting a bit exhausted <laughs> of points. I guess one last quick question on the options front. How is RFQ adoption being, you know, I used to work at a hedge fund. We used to like ping telegram chats with various devs about like, uh, how much they're coding for various option strategies. So I'm curious, has RFQ seen like a healthy amount of adoption or are most people still trading through like the central demo or the book? If my understanding is correct, vaults are still settled like through our RFQ system Are is there a, an estimate of way when they would be like exchanged or would be settled within the exchange itself. So yeah, maybe if, just for some context, we actually built like an RFQ feature within AVO exchange itself. So 
the vaults do use the RFQ, but it's within the exchange. We don't use like a external RFQ provider and settle somewhere else. Like everything is just on the exchange right now on the vault side of things. Um, yeah, on the RFQ front, we don't see like a lot of people naturally using it. I think it's been very targeted when a, a large whale comes in and either they cannot exit because their size is too big for the book or they want to enter. Uh, they don't want to like keep eating through the order book. They'll usually ping us and uh, they'll use the RFQ to basically trade with the other market makers. So I would say for now, it's still definitely more manual. We don't have like a super active like network of people creating and automatically responding to RFQs 24-7 yet, but it's mostly used as like a way to trade bilateral with someone else without doing it on the order book. Um, another like interesting use case that we have found is, uh, yeah, some of these options, if they are like super out of the money or super in the money, like, I don't know, let's, for example, actually this happened last night. Like uh, there's this user who, you know, when BDC was at 48K, he bought like a 46K BDC put. Uh, so, I mean, he, he made money on that, right? Uh, but now like BTC is at 38K, no one's quoting like a 48K put. It's like so deep in the money that liquidity for that option is really low. So yeah, within our exchange itself, like if you click like close position and there's not enough liquidity, it'll automatically like send that order through the RFQ. So actually we find like that has been the most like useful um, feature of the RFQ. It's just like, if there's no natural, like if there's no liquidity in the book, uh, we'll basically help to get liquidity for whatever this guy's trying to get out of uh, through the RFQ feature. And this doesn't like force the market makers to always show their bids and offers on the book. It's just, they only need to respond when people ask for it. Um, and usually like these users, you know, if they are so in profit, like they don't mind taking a haircut. So it is also like profitable for the market maker to do. Um, but yeah, I think that's been the adoption on RFQ side. Uh, we actually do have some ideas around, um, yeah, I think like all we need really is just getting, you know, something like 10 trading firms slash big options traders. And we just need a small, tiny network of guys like trading with each other all the time. Um, so yeah, I think like instead of getting 10,000 users, it actually makes a lot more sense to get like 10 really active trading firms slash big traders, just like PVPing out against each other um, using like our, our order books or our RFQ. So we are trying to build that up now. Um, still in the works, but I think that would be like the best way for us to immediately get some uh, significant like tick up in trading volume and adoption. What's up everyone, March is approaching fast and I wanna give you another reminder not to miss out on DAS London. It is coming, it's right around the corner and it's in March from the 18th to the 20th. We have three full days of content. This is your chance to bump shoulders with some of the world's top executives and have open dialogue with both attendees and speakers. We're gonna be focusing on a range of topics that I'll let Ren discuss for you. First on the list, we have Bitcoin Catalyst, the halving and spot ETF. Next, we have a view from the buy side from investors on things like strategy 
strategy, portfolio allocation, and more. We also have a topic on RWA's tokenization and stablecoins, which I think we can all agree are going to play a large role in crypto's future. We'll also talk about global regulatory frameworks like compliance best practices and the evolution of global standards that are shaping the global investment landscape. We'll also have someone from the institutional front to talk about infrastructure such as banking and payments with financial giants like Visa and JP Morgan. And last on the list, the macro case for digital assets. So don't miss out on this monumental event. Seats are limited. So be sure to register today by hitting the link in the description and using the promo code 0x10 to save 10% on tickets. See you in London. If moving on to the perp side then, um, I think one of the most interesting products you've launched in a while is RDS pre-launch futures, um, which correct me if I'm wrong, but seems that the market has really like kind of found you through those or that product. And one thing that I think a lot of people are wondering about is how scalable is the product? Because right now, um, like pretty much all of the listings uh, for pre-launch are quite low volume compared to like your other products or like your normal perps. Um, so could you explain how the kind of the di- dynamics of pre-launch futures, how they work and then how maybe scalable they are? Yeah, so uh, yeah, it's a very interesting topic. I think we just had this idea a few months ago, like uh, we were sitting in the office and like Binance announced that they were doing this like say launch pool. And we were just joking around like, oh, what if we could just like make a market for it today before it comes out on Binance? Uh, and I mean, people in our office, we are like traders as well. Like we all have our own guesses on where we think the price is going to be like, just like betting over under with each other. Um, and yeah, we thought like, what if we could actually make this a product on, on the exchange itself? Um, so that was how we started thinking about it. And how it works really is, it's actually really simple. Um, it's basically like an order book and it doesn't have um, sort of like an index price. People are just trading trading something where the, there is a mark price which starts somewhere and uh, it gradually floats up or down based on whether people are buying or people are selling. Um, so it doesn't jump around. It, it kind of like, we, we use this like a, we, we use this like a sort of combination of like a VWAP and a TWAP to basically like move the mark price around. Um, but yeah, I think that lets people speculate on this thing and why it actually will converge to reality is because when the token actually launches, we just convert this instrument into a regular perp. So we just input, okay, now we know that the spot price is $1 on Binance. We, we input the spot price is $1 and the funding rate mechanism just kicks in as per usual. And this instrument that people were trading before will end up converging to uh, whatever the spot price is. So that's kind of how it works. I think before the spot price um, is sort of listed, people are sort of trading trading this weird thing, which no one really knows uh, whether it's accurate or not. I think it only converges to reality when this, when the token actually comes out. So we, we try and list these pre-launch markets, which are not like too far out. I think, um, for example, like layer zero, like some other ex- exchanges listed like a layer zero, like pre-launch, but you know, we, we, it's been sort of like teased for so long. No one knows when it's coming out. Like you may be, trading this thing that doesn't mean anything for a year before it like ever comes out. We don't even know if it'll come out. So yeah, I think our philosophy is just like, 
let's try and make pre-launch pre-launch stuff for tokens that we know for sure are coming out and hopefully within you know a month or so um and that has gotten the most traction i think we're just lucky as well that um there were a lot of interesting token launches in the last month um and upcoming this year there are going to be a lot of interesting token launches so i think yeah these pre-launch stuff has really got a lot of attention um basically the project or people who are interested in the project look at the price as like a reference for like okay how much is my airdrop going to be worth um there are this whole subset of users um who are you know like hedging their airdrop which is also a very interesting use case uh like we see all these youtube videos about like how to hedge a jupiter airdrop on evo um basically like all these guys i don't know maybe they they, they sibled the the thing and just had a ton of tokens and you know they can like lock in the price now which is like pretty interesting use case for them um and obviously like the the last group is just like speculators you know uh, when we launched the jupiter pre-launch uh product it was i think we started the market at like a billion fdv which was in hindsight way too low so over the course of the next few weeks like it went from 1b to like 8b so if you were just a speculator like thinking this was underpriced, you could really just trade it and, and sell it and get out without even thinking about like um, waiting for the actual token to launch. So I do think there are a lot of like interesting use cases for different types of traders. Um, and yeah, I think it has gotten a lot of like new users onto the platform, even though the volumes are not anywhere close to BDC and ETH perps, like it actually attracts a lot of people to onboard to Evo for the first time which is actually what we care about. So we don't really worry about like how big these products can get as long as they're sort of still getting a lot of new users onboarded, uh, interested in Evo, um, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think it's something that people have shown like clear demand. And I think another interesting dynamic is that I think the first pre-launch futures markets, like perhaps they weren't that efficient at price discovery. But over time, you saw these markets like where the free launch future market ended up was a lot closer to where um, the actual token launched at. I think the best example of that was Jito, if I'm not wrong. Like for the Jito pre launch future market, like the price was pretty damn spot on, maybe off by like <laughs> 20 cents or so. Yeah, yeah. Like 10% or 20% off, but very close. Uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, there are these like interesting use cases for like, price discovery, um, you know, insiders maybe are trading this. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, so maybe this is like a market for like insiders eventually to, to bring the price where they think it's going to be. But yeah, I mean, we think like, uh, markets, are, I mean, this is sort of like free markets at its best, uh, yeah. people who have more information will sort of make it as efficient as possible. Um, yeah, so I think it's very similar to like a prediction market, which is like mm -hmm. a fun thing to trade as well. So there's a bit of like a sport behind it as well, because I think a lot of people don't trade like massive size on these things. It's more like a fun little thing. Um, yeah, but we actually did see one, like one very interesting phenomenon that we saw was like uh, a few days before the Celestia token went live, we just saw like a huge like uptake in open interest. It, it probably doubled. 
and it was from like just a few wallets. So I think uh, there was one or two entities who basically uh, tried to get as much size as they could on the Celestia pre-launch market. So I don't know if they held it, but if they held it, they probably got in like below $2, which was like an amazing price in hindsight. Um, so yeah, maybe someone knew something and, <laughs> and that's sort of how they wanted to get exposure. Uh, maybe they expected like a day one pop, which never really happened. Um, and yet they just wanted to accumulate as much as they could. Interesting. Time to do some on-chain studying to find this behind <laughs> it. Um, you mentioned that you really want to focus on perfs. And I think perfs is probably one of the most competitive verticals within DeFi today. Um, so I guess the question there is, how does your perps architecture or your perps dex architecture differ from something say like DYDX and how do you continue to, how do you plan on continuing to incentivize large traders or even retail traders to change platforms? Yeah, I think, um, I would say in terms of UX, our, our sort of perps offering is pretty similar to DYDX V3. So. You know, when user, all users and traders uh, basically just interface with like this API uh, to submit orders. So you get like the millisecond latency that you want. Um, I think that really appeals, especially to like the options market makers. Cause you know, whenever price moves by, if ETH moves by like half a percent, they need to update like all their codes across like 400 different strikes at once. So I do think like having sub like a sub 10 sec 10 millisecond latency is really important for uh, submitting a lot of orders at once. Um, and yeah, I think we feel like the model is actually pretty practical and it feels pretty good from like a user perspective. You don't feel the latency. Uh, you feel if we, we sort of hide like the, um, the MetaMask, like you, you don't need to sign your MetaMask transaction every single every single trade. Uh, I, I think it's as close to a centralized exchange experience as you can get. Um, but yeah, no, I do agree with you that it is like one of the most um, competitive spaces to, to play in right now. Um, we do think some of our major advantages are, as you said, on the option side and on the pre-launch side. So we are spending a lot of effort uh, trying to actually make those like as good as possible. Um, I think on, it, it's like really difficult to compete on BDC and ETH perps. You know, there are like 20 platforms that offer almost exactly the same thing. We need to sort of create something that appeals in a different way. So we also do have some ideas of how we can combine options and perps in an interesting way. So for example, <laughs> There's this whole concept on, on Bybit called like uh, protected perps. I don't know if you've seen that, but basically if you enter a perp position, like you can click a button and like protect yourself by like automatically buying a put or something. Uh, and they make it like really user-friendly for you to do it. So yeah, I think there are all these like interesting uh, product features that we could do, which combine the products in a different way. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, right now, uh, the market is still, I, I completely agree with you, it's super competitive. I think our focus actually has been just like user acquisition, particularly outside of the, what we think of as like the crypto Twitter bubble. Uh, we do think we don't want to go after the user who's going to jump from, 
protocol to protocol based on what points they're getting. We think that crowd is, even though they may have a lot of clout on, on crypto Twitter and they may have like quite a good amount of capital, we think it's like a very, very, very mercenary crowd. So a lot of like our growth and marketing efforts have actually been on very different growth strategies, which we think are actually quite effective. So stuff that, you know, like tier two Chinese exchanges do. So a lot of like the um, marketing in non-English speaking regions, especially, we've been very focused on that. And I think that really shows in our metrics um, because two things, like we have the largest user count of any DEX, like by a lot. Um, a lot of these users are, are small, so they're not like high value, big traders, but you know, they trade a few ETH perps or, or they trade a small amount of, um, on our platform. We have a lot of those and, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we have also just seen like the geog geographic, uh, segmentation of where our users come from. A lot of them, like more than half come from non-English speaking regions. So on our web on our website, like the the three languages which are supported are English, uh, Chinese, and and Russian. So we do have a lot of like CIS uh, users and Chinese users as well. So that's been like our growth strategy so far. Uh, that's also why we feel like we don't need to play like the fee compression game. I think a lot of these users don't really care if uh, they're paying eight basis points or five basis points is practically the same thing on the sites that they're trading. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we think this is just like way more sticky, way more robust of a user group, uh, less less competitive than trying to fight for the same 5,000 DeFi, like crypto Twitter users. Um, so yeah, that's been our strategy so far, but we surely we'll see at some point, we would also need to go after like the crypto Twitter people. Um, but we just started in a very different spot. Yeah, that's super refreshing to see that. Not everybody is just focused on uh, crypto Twitter people. Maybe uh, continuing on the development front. Um, I know you guys have um, previously tried to kind of, as you mentioned, uh, vertically integrate and kind of introduce products that are uh, super complementary to each other. Um, and I've seen Evo recently tweet about like some big upcoming developments and uh, like trying to expand to a broader DeFi ecosystem. Uh, maybe any possibility for you to drop some alpha here or? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll probably share, I'll, I'll, I'll be sharing this in the next few weeks. Um, but basically we are going to build an ecosystem as well and not just be like a app specific chain. Um, I think what we think is the difficulty of building a layer two is getting the users and getting people to bridge into a new layer two is like the hardest thing you could do. Like, I mean, I'm sure you guys know it. Like if you tell me that I need a bridge into some like shitty layer two, like I'm just not going to do it. Um, but I think we have built this app that people enjoy and people don't think about it as bridging into a layer two where they don't know what they're going to do with it. They think, oh, I'm just depositing into Able. But un under the hood, they have already bridged their, their money into this exchange and, and the chain itself. So, um, you know, I think like when, when Manta did their whole crazy like 
scheme to get a lot of TVL and so on. They they had something in the order of a hundred thousand wallets who deposited who bridged over into their chain. Like we currently almost have that number. We we are like at sixty something thousand user cumulative users on the exchange. Um, but you know all these people haven't thought about it as like bridging into a layer two. They they just think about it as like oh I, I used Able once. Um, so yeah, I think we are working on basically becoming like a full stack layer two and using this like super app that we built, which is the exchange and helping users like offboard from the exchange into any of the other apps in the ecosystem. That's something we are going to be working on. Um, it is it, sort of a bit of a longer term plan, but for now, for sure, the focus is like making this exchange as successful as possible because we think, you know, once you do that, it'd be a lot easier to basically build stuff around it. Um, yeah, so that's sort of like uh, what we've been focused on. Um, I'll, I'll be spe- I'll be sort of sharing more details about like the edge that we think we have or like what angle we want to play, but that's what we'll be doing uh, this year. And also I think if you looked at like our AEUSD announcement a few months ago, we basically designed it, like we could have built it in like a very simple way but we took like the difficult way of making it like composable so we use like um some of like the d5 vault formats erc20 uh, erc formats that are like uh composable of different like d5 apps and so on and basically this like exchange stable coin that we have aeusd is like usable outside of the exchange as well uh so it was sort of built with that intention in mind. We just haven't done it yet. We just haven't had any use cases outside of the exchange yet. Um, but yeah, I think that would be a big focus for us this year. Um, and yeah, I think like one interesting observation that I have had is like a lot of these layer twos, like they they build the ecosystem, but there's no, um, like they, they don't build any of the apps on it. Uh, we think, you know, that's why they need to extract maybe some sequence or rent or something like that's how they monetize. But yeah, one interesting idea is like, you know, what if we own both the layer two and the app on it? And like, what if we didn't need to extract rent at the, at the, the chain level? Like maybe the sequencer just makes zero money because we think we make enough on the exchange. Um, and like all apps on the, the exchange, all, all apps on the chain can basically get all the consumer surplus back. Um, that's like an idea we're playing with as well. Yeah, that's that's super cool. I haven't really heard anybody else talk about this stuff as that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so it, it, we'll be sharing more details, but that's like a little bit of a teaser, I guess. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, maybe going to the AVO and Ribbon tokens then. So basically in short, you guys rebranded from Ribbon to AVO a few months ago, and now the AVO governance proposal one got approved, which basically means that the native token RMB will be um, rebranded to AVO uh, by the end of this month. And I was wondering what went into the process of like redesigning the token structure, and maybe could you give a short overview of how the token is going to be used um, once it's rebranded? Yeah, so um, I think when we decided to basically go all in on building the Evo Exchange, uh, we basically had this choice of whether 
you know, I think everyone sort of expected us to just make a new token because that's what's like rational, I guess. You get like, a, I don't know, it's like the most extractive thing that people can do. Uh, it's just like abandon the old thing, make a new thing. But I think we felt like uh, we didn't want to, we, we had this like community from before. Uh, we built up like a bunch of goodwill from before. Um, all our investors, we didn't want to like screw them over, our token holders as well. So yeah, we decided to just, instead of doing a new token, we we still wanted like all the benefits of a new token, like uh, uh, the attention, um, the fresh chart, sort of like a new story. I think that was like a very important thing for us, but we didn't want to basically like screw over the old token holders. So we decided, you know, let's just do like a one-to-one -one uh, token conversion. No, no inflation, no additional tokens get printed. If you own 1% of RBN, you own 1% of the ABO tokens as well. We thought that was really fair. Um, but we still had, you know, as I mentioned, like we could still like create a lot of uh, excitement around a new thing, a new story, a new narrative. Uh, and, and yeah, just make it official by having like a new ticker and so on. So yeah, that was sort of the story behind it. Um, we, in terms of like uh, tokenomics, I think we have like folded all the revenues into um, our, our plan is to basically fold all the revenues from like the vaults and whatever businesses. Like our, we, ha we had a few like smaller businesses like the Ribbon Earn, Ribbon Vaults and, and so on. Just like fold all those revenues plus the trading fees into one stream. Um, put that all back into like the, the treasury and use a portion of that for basically beefing out our, our insurance fund. Um, use a portion of that to pay out like our, what we think of as like our company development company expenses and the remaining, at least in the proposal, uh, was like going back to this like maker style program. Um, you know, that, that may change over the next few months, but I think when we made the proposal, that was like the value, uh, like that, that was like the best like uh, value creation model out there or value accrual model out there. Uh, that was like the meta of the bear market, really. So we may need to change it at some point. But um, yeah, that's been the idea so far. Cool. And yeah, how do you basically think about incentivizing then traders? Because I think you uh, mentioned earlier that you haven't really tried doing that before. And now basically the treasury owns, is it 45% of the total supply? And around up to 16%, I think is uh, kind of saved for possible incentives um, to be yes. like distributed in the future. So uh, I think one lucky thing for us, I guess, is we didn't like waste all our tokens on like a crazy liquidity mining program last cycle. I think we knew very quickly that we, we, we tried doing a bit of liquidity mining and it wasn't, it wasn't like creating an increase in TVL after a certain point. So we kind of just like turned the tap off very quickly. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the DAO has just been sitting on this like huge chunk of tokens for a long time, um, which is great. So it's kind of like a fresh, uh, like new projects usually allocate something in this ballpark to what the DAO can spend on incentives anyway. So yeah, I think we still have the luxury of spending it. Um, we can still run like pretty aggressive uh, growth programs if we wanted to. 
and like trader incentives, which we are designing right now. Um, yeah, I think we, we still need a, we still haven't released details about that, but uh, that's something we are very actively working on now. Just like figuring out how we can best use this whole chunk of tokens um, in the short term, like getting to become one of the best DEXs out there and, you know, in the long term, like building an ecosystem as well. So, um, yeah, I think we are just uh, glad that we didn't blow it all on some like dumb liquidity mining program last cycle. I think it's good. You guys also pretty aggressively cut down on the token emissions through various like DAO governance files. So that's like something that I don't think other protocols were as proactive on. Jumping back to sort of like the slight alpha that you leaked just now in terms of the ecosystem and what you guys are planning to build there. Given that you guys are a roll-up, do you guys ever think about like interoperability with other roll-ups? Obviously, you guys are built using the OP stack and Optimism has this concept of the Optimism super chain. Is that something you guys are actively thinking about or is it more so like we think we are very comfortable growing our own ecosystem on this like AVO roll-up and we don't feel like we'll ever need to like access or be like interoperable with all of these other roll-ups? Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe firstly, like, I think one major difference or one observation that I've had is a lot of the top perp dexes in the space have all basically branched out to build their own chain. Um, obviously DYDX being like the, the canonical one. Uh, yeah, I like to think about it as like DYDX has abandoned Ethereum, uh, so, you know, they, they used to be built on Ethereum, but for a bunch of reasons, they have decided to uh, go on their own chain. And, you know, we've seen that same thing on a bunch of newer chains like Hyperliquid, uh, even like the Vertex guys. I think they wrote a thread a while back, like, oh, what what if we could be our own parallel EVM layer one or something? Um, but I mean, I think we feel like the ETH stack is getting better and better over time. We feel like, it is possible to build good products uh, on the ETH stack alone. Uh, we think we want to be like the shining example of that, that you can build like one of the biggest DEXs out there without having to build your own layer one. Um, yeah, in terms of like interoperability, I think like right now, the OP super chain, I, I would think is still more, more of an idea than reality it's not exactly clear what it means. Um, there's no like formal spec of what super chains uh, can do with each other. Um, it's still more of just like a coalition of different projects built on OP stack uh, and some sort of like economic ties between them. So we are like open to the idea of doing it as long as we see like that strong benefit to our user base as well. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, there are a bunch of interesting, like, cross-roll-up technologies which people are building, sort of, like, shared sequences stuff and maybe, like, shared liquidity stuff that we are looking into. I don't think anyone has really cracked it yet, but um, I don't think we need to choose between completely owning our own infra infrastructure and, like, ecosystem or plugging to some of these newer stuff. I think we can just try both and whatever helps users get a better experience we'll do. Um, so yeah, I think we're not really like super like 
strict maxis on whether we want to work with other chains or not. Uh, I think it's more of a uh, matter of like what is practical. If there are ways for us to tap into Uniswap liquidity, I mean, we, we should do that because I think like getting Uniswap liquidity is way more um, important in the short run than like building our own spot market. It's way easier to just tap into like one of the best spot markets out there. Um, so yeah, I think for stuff like that, we'll probably just like do some in interesting interop if we can. Uh, for other stuff, maybe which we feel are more native to our app and our ecosystem, we can just build in-house uh, or within our ecosystem. So yeah, no, no, like clear either or here, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's helpful context. Um, one last question I wanted to ask, jumping around a little bit here is about the liquidation engine, right? I think the market conditions that Avo has operated in has been relatively muted compared to like a full on bull market where we would realistically see a lot more market volatility. So two questions kind of in there. How do you think about the cross margin framework and its performance in like increased volatility conditions? And do you mind just giving a quick overview of like the liquid liquidation engine, given that for a lot of people, that's like still sort of a black box, but that was a like major cause of problems for a lot of like either like DeFi ex uh, exchanges or even like centralized exchanges. Yeah. So uh, I, I agree that the biggest risk for derivative taxes is sort of the insurance fund slash liquidation engine. Because uh, basically handled wrongly, we think that can create a lot of losses, especially if it's like exploitable. Like, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen some of the DYDX stuff in the last like month or so, the Wi-Fi market. Um, so we haven't done any crazy new changes to how liquidations are done. I think we kind of model it based on how some of the other major centralized exchanges do it. So it, it's sort of this like multi-step process. First, you know, the engine will try and liquidate you in the order books. If like, the book is way too wide or there's not enough liquidity in the book, um, basically that position gets absorbed by the insurance fund. And there's a, a sort of like third step that, you know, if the insurance fund cannot accept these positions, I don't know if it hits some sort of limit, uh, there'll be some sort of auto deleveraging event, uh, which we haven't sort of had to use yet. Cause I mean, the markets, I wouldn't say it, it's not been like crazy so far. Um, so yeah, I don't think we're doing anything crazy. I think some of the main stuff that we've been working on is stuff around risk control compared to actually at the liquidation engine level. So just stuff like OI caps on different markets, especially the pre-launch stuff, which we think is like actually quite risky because there's no natural liquidity for this stuff. So we try and cap the markets there. Uh, we kept like the order sizes and position sizes that that uh, accounts can take. Um, yeah, I think we have a bunch of like internal risk monitoring to see if there are like huge spikes in OI and different things. Uh, just trying to quickly see that um, is is there any active like manipulation of different markets, especially the low liquidity ones. Um, yeah, we 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 hired a bunch of people from like exchanges and trading firms who have done like risk related stuff before. So I think, yeah, it's like really important for all exchanges to have like a risk team. I think, uh, some crazy stat, which I heard, I don't know if it's true, but like, I don't know, more like more than like half of Deribit's employees are like risk related 
people. Um, just like looking at big positions, making sure they don't like wipe out everything else is really important. So, um, yeah, I think we've also just been trying to grow that. Uh, for now, we have set the like position limits pretty conservatively. Um, I think if I'm not wrong, like even on ETH and BTC, you can't do more than like a few mil position size. Um, so, you know, the trader who wants to do 20 mil would never be able to trade on EVO right now, but that's sort of just like a interim measure while we slowly increase the sizes. Uh, as the insurance fund gets bigger and bigger, we feel more comfortable like letting users take bigger and bigger positions as well. Um, so yeah, there's no like clear answer, but I think it's just like an iterative process and we just need to be careful and not be too aggressive. I think uh, if, if it blows up once, it's sort of over. So you can't really recover from that. Um, so yeah, being more on the cautious side, I would say um, our liquidation engine is actually quite aggressive. So uh, I would say it's like slightly safer for the exchange. Um, slightly worse for users right now, but we think it's probably better this way for now. Um, otherwise it may end up like an FTX scenario. Um, so yeah, that's sort of where we are in terms of like risk and liquidations. Um, we are working on something that FTX used to have, which is uh, what they call like a liquidation, like backstop provider. So it's basically like a set of entities who post capital to the exchange and voluntarily take on liquidations as one of the steps in this like waterfall process. So we are working on that as well. All right. That's great to hear that you guys are putting a lot of thought onto like the risk side of things, which I think there's a few exchanges out there which sort of overlooked that. Yeah, I mean, a it, bit. It, it's definitely very scary and it's sort of like a... Yeah, as I said, you can't like fix your way out of it after it it, it it sort of explodes. Yeah, gotta watch out for the highly profitable trading strategies. Uh, anyway, I think we've managed to cover a lot of ground today and we really appreciate the insight into sort of everything, how you guys are thinking about future products, the AVO ecosystem, the token rebrand. Is there any final thoughts that you wanted to add or anything that you'd like to emphasize for the listeners? Uh, no, I think, um, you guys had great questions. So we covered a lot. Uh, yeah, I think just stay tuned for more information about how we think about our long-term plans. I think that'd be quite exciting. So yeah, I think we have a lot to look forward to this year. Um, in the first six months, sort of focused on becoming the biggest decks out there. Uh, the second sort of half of the year would be focused more on ecosystem. All right. And for listeners that want to find out more about you or Avo, where can they find you? Yeah, I would say uh, follow Avo XYZ on Twitter or uh, yeah, just follow Avo XYZ on Twitter. Uh, if you have any like issues, just DM the account or go into our Discord. We have in the last sort of few weeks we uh, since our user count has just been exploding we have just like scaled our customer support we've gotten like five different mods on board so it's like uh way way more responsive now than it was like a month ago all right that's great to hear thank you so much for taking the time to come on this podcast and this was honestly a great one learned a lot got a lot of insight and i think the uh, listeners will be really excited about listening to this one too it's really good timing cool thanks man all right thanks julian
Hey everyone, thanks for watching today's Zero X Research episode. I wanted to take a second and remind you about our upcoming 2024 Digital Asset Summit in London this March. Seats are limited, so hit the link in the description and use the promo code 0x10 to save 10% on tickets. See you in London.